Welcome to A Force for Change. I'm Diane Dosis. And I'm Kata Isari. And we'll be your hosts for this podcast, which is brought to you by Praxis. We created this podcast to explore the through lines in our work to end gender-based violence, where we've been, where we are now, and where we've yet to go. The advocates, organizers, and activists we interview on the show hold pieces of our origin stories. We'll learn about the power of connection from the conversations that led to the creation of one of the first shelters for Asian Americans to the ways we've created space for survivors to connect with one another and lead our movement for social justice. In today's episode, Katis speaks with Jill Abernathy, a longtime advocate, organizer, and activist in the movement to end gender-based violence. Jill links her experience as a survivor to her activism for social change and reflects on how the two are inseparable for her. Before retiring, Jill worked at the Duluth Abuse Intervention Project and supervised visitation centers. For many years, Jill both facilitated and trained facilitators for groups using the Duluth model curriculum in our best interest. Hi, I'm Kata Isari, and I'm coming to you today from Seattle, Washington, the traditional homeland of the Coast Salish people, including the Duwamish, Suquamish, Stiligwamish, and Muckleshoot peoples. I'm so excited to be here today with Jill Abernathy. Jill, you want to tell us where you're calling in from? Yes. Hi, Kata. I'm here in Duluth, Minnesota, and this is the land of the Anishinaabe, and uh, I'm just so happy to be here. Yeah, it's going to be a great conversation. Bill, tell us how you first got involved in this work to end gender-based violence. Well, Kata, this is one of my funnest stories, and it was a turning point in my life. It was November of 1986, <laughs> and I, uh, well, I needed, I needed to leave my husband. I did not see myself in an abusive relationship, which is very common. Uh, but I had come home from work one night. Well, you know, so my husband and I fought. <laughs> That's what I called it. Uh, and he had begun to get uh, more violent. And I came home from work one night and went upstairs to say goodnight to my kids. And my son, who was six, was saying, don't tell her, don't tell her, don't tell her, please don't tell her. And my daughter, who was eight, said, I have to. And I said, okay, you know, try to make them as comfortable as I could. And what was it? And and uh, she told me a little story of what had happened that night. And uh, he had hurt my son physically. And that really, that for me, fortunately, and I always say, I think part of that was is because I wasn't abused as a child, that it was helpful for me. I, I saw all the women in my home and my older sisters. I saw what I know now as abuse, but us kids, we might have been ignored or whatever, but not physically hurt. And so that was like, wow, you know, and I got to get out of here. Well, I contacted a sister. Now, I had two sisters, Shirley Olberg and Madeline Dupre, already working in Duluth, Minnesota, in the women's movement. And I knew they were working in that, but I didn't know what that was. <laughs> anyway, I made a phone call to a sister, and it was miraculous. They got Talk about organizers. Now, my sisters mm. were organizers. Uh, I was I was moved from Homestead, Iowa, 
to Duluth, Minnesota in 72 hours. Wow. And uh, so <laughs> I got to Duluth and just kind of, just kind of uh, absent, sort of in shock, not really knowing, still feeling like I was in love with my husband, just whatever. And um, my sisters said, well, you need to go to women's group. Now, this is like, I think it's the first night I was there for sure the first week. And I was like, why do I need to go to women's group? No, Jill, you just need to go. They give transportation and they have childcare. Now, I had four kids aging from one year old to eight. They had childcare. <laughs> and <laughs> so I'll always say that, you know, you got to include the kids and a way for a woman to get to group if it's possible. And so I started group within six weeks of going to group. I was asked to facilitate. <laughs> I mean, cause in those days, the women that were there for quote unquote help, we were all sisters in it and everybody's story and everybody's peace was, was as important as everybody else's. And that's how we learned from each other. Oh, I quickly named the, my Monday night group, the Yaya group, because one woman would be telling her story and the rest of us would be going, yeah, yeah, me too. And you know, batterers, isolation is really big. So yeah. that ability to just be with other women was fun. And I've heard a lot of women use the word fun that, that have said to me, I run into them in the community. They'll say things like, you know, when I met you and started coming to group, I should look back on that as one of the worst times of my life, the divorce, the everything that went on. But I remember the fun. And the fun was us women being together. And so anyway, Shirley Oberg also, she and Ellen Pence were creating the curriculum in our best interest. Mm -hmm. So that became my education. That's what I learned. I learned that curriculum of inner best interest. And Shirley was also running an action group. So she would get the women who were going to women's groups and tell us what was going on and did we want to be involved in this action. Now, this is still November of 1986. So I'm just new there. And I'm like, yeah, of course, I want to be with all the women and we'll probably have pizza, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and childcare. Yeah. Oh, yes, definitely childcare. Right. And a woman, uh, she was a Native woman and she had been arrested and was in jail uh, for having stabbed her partner in her kitchen. And he died. And so she was in our local jail. And she was a battered woman. And what had happened was he, he would assault her in the kitchen and she went to defend herself. She grabbed a knife. So this is my first, I have no idea that it's a political action, really. I, I would never have, but it was. And the point was, well, to support her. But also we did want media attention. We did want to know that, there was more to this than she, that she murdered her husband. Because first of all, she loved him. She didn't want to murder him. She was defending mm -hmm. herself. So we're going to have a candlelight vigil here in Duluth, Minnesota. And November's are very, very dark early. And so 
it was a silent vigil. And I'm still very, I'm going to say, you know, naive to the big picture. I'm just learning. I'm a new student. <laughs> we were handed out signs to carry. So I get one. And as I said, it was a silent vigil. And so I turned mine around to see what mine said. And it said, this could have happened to me. And to this very day, that touches me because it could have been me. So at that, that's when I say at that given moment, I knew. I knew I was part of, that these were my people. And that's how it started. And after... <laughs> All of us women, they go. We go to my house. I think that's where the childcare was going on. We go there, get a pizza, and watch ourselves on the news, just laughing. This is big. This is serious. But we're like, oh my god, my husband's going to see this. Oh oh, and you know, and I think back that I was thirty-two years old. I feel like I was a teenager in the sense of awe and wonderment. But I found where I belonged at that point. And I, you stayed in the work ever since. Ever since. Ever since. Could you tell us a, a little bit? I just said that I know because I know you that you've done a, a whole variety of different types of work related to gender-based violence. And I think in particular, intimate partner violence. But do you mind just sharing a little bit of some of the different things that you've done over the years? Yeah. Amidst all the different work I've done, I think I made the biggest difference in women's groups. And women's groups, one of the reasons I think I made a bigger difference there is because it was all of us together. It wasn't me just doing one-on-one -on -one advocacy, mm -hmm. but all of us together because the stories that women were telling, that's what we went off from. And what in our best interest and my organization I was working out of was very important to teach us the bigger picture, the, how the institutions that exist are supporting the oppression of women and all oppressed people and how that connection was there for all of us. And so like in women's groups, when a woman would tell what happened, rather than to try to like, oh, fix that or something, like I'd put it on the board and we'd start looking at how many of, how many of you is this happening to It'd be, everybody. And then we'd take it out, sort of like the culture wheel, if you're familiar with that, put another like circle around it and say, what institutions support that this is all right? It was education. It wasn't, I say, I always say I, I did education groups and yes, women were getting support, but we were learning why this was happening to us. And biggest of all, what beliefs had we bought into that we were actually supporting it on some level? We don't want it to happen to us or to other women, but what beliefs did we have about everything? So we'd go from what happened in her home into why that's supported and why it's happening to all of us women into, well, what are my own beliefs? So that we learned that if we changed the way we thought, we we would make that would make a difference in the decisions we made and you know what we tolerated so what else did i do okay well i got to do a lot of trainings i 
I worked in every part of the domestic abuse intervention project. There was a visitation center. I worked in there and clearly saw that how quickly anything that is set up to originally help women and children gets neutralized, especially if they're involved with the criminal justice system, because it hugely, so these women were battered. That's why they had to use the visitation center. But the courts, their attorneys, a general public analysis of us was that men were getting screwed. And guardian at litems, uh, anybody working custody evaluators would say, hey, you know, he wants to be a father and, you know, we need more active fathers. And the majority of women would say, I want him to be involved in, in my kids' lives too. I just want the kids safe. So there was, so when I would get involved with other programs that are originally set up to keep women and children safe, I would quickly see that if there wasn't strong advocacy there, it was so easy to become more neutral and be blaming women. I mean, I looked at the way these logs, you know, after a visit, they would go to the court and reading them, everything he said she did, like he's saying, she's on antidepressants and she's, you know, she's, well, I always hear crazy, but uh, she brings him to the doctor for every single little thing. All of that stuff would be in those notes. Now, those things that she was doing, she may have been doing those things, but they were not harming a child. So the direction had just gone off where we clearly saw that whatever, what the men were saying was believed. And women would be very, like they would come in and they'd be very almost crazed. I mean, they'd be just telling all of these things that he does. And what, Myself and my coworkers realized is we got to help these women figure out how to articulate what he does that is unsafe for the children. This is what we learned. We learned, and, and, and I'm grateful for this, again, women's groups. Let's figure out a curriculum, get women that are going to the visitation center involved in this and sort through this stuff that's bothering them. and put it on the board and and how does this affect your child or does this just piss you off? Cause you know, he's doing it to make you mad. Courts don't care that he's making you mad. You have to identify, you know, what's hurting the child. Just this type of work that I got to do with every place I got involved in putting the focus back on what we're here for could make all the difference. Yeah. You know, Jill, it's, it's so moving to hear you describe these stories about the, it's such a grounded description of what I think over the years we've intellectualized about this work, uh, which is, you know, you talked about, it's really about creating change, but also you describe building community and having comfort and having safety and, Yet it was it was so political. It was so, you know, you were being activists with each other. And and so often now I hear more about 
bringing together survivors to heal or, you know, that you can't introduce these other concepts because it's, you know, they're in crisis or they're traumatized. And um, yet it seems like it was so natural and organic the way you all did that and the way that you have done that in your life. It makes me think like where you think the movement has evolved. I know you, you familiar with some of the approaches that have been used in more recent years. What are your thoughts about where we're at now with this kind of work? Okay. Now I want to be careful with what I say because I'm pretty much retired. And so I'm not, so I want to be careful because please know that this is a generalization of what I have seen. And then COVID happened, which has put a damper. I'm sure it's just caused a lot of problems for women to be able to get together. But I think we, I think we just began to get more institutionalized. We, as in those of us doing the work? Yes, but was it the funding necessary we were getting? How was this happening? But becoming more of a service. Oh, this woman needs an order for protection. Okay, go over to the resource center and get an order for protection. And that's wonderful. She needed an order for protection. But we began to separate into this place will do that and this place will do this. And we were losing that connection where we were continually talking about the big themes of what was going on for women. What I also saw, you know, it was so many years ago and I recognize that, but we really, we had interagency meetings all the time, like so we like I was part of what was called the domestic abuse project, and we would meet with the women's shelter, the native women's housing program, the uh, regular transitional housing. Oh, gosh, you name it, any the YWCA. It was like, let's let's get together at least twice a month and let's know what each other does. And uh, let's, you know, share our our resources and our knowledge and. um you know, hang out together. Like, <laughs> I don't know if that happens. And, and I even, I even understand why a lot of that doesn't happen, but it was so beneficial. Let's go back to the work that you've done with women's groups. Tell us more about the ways you've used groups in your work. Here's another example of a woman's group I did. All right. My program was also did a men's nonviolence group. So one of the things that we did was contact the women whose partner or former partner got ordered to our program. We'd contact her and ask her to come to group. And this would be a separate group. I just did groups everywhere. (laughs) And uh, there were a few things I wanted them to know. I wanted them to know an overview of what we were doing in men's groups which meant take a look at the power and control wheel. So they were very similar, but it was important they learned the language the men were learning because men were starting to use that language to abuse women more. Mm-hmm. So I I do think programs that if you do have men's groups, I hope the women are being contacted and you're getting the information. That was our belief always, is get the information from the women that this needs to be the victim, the battered woman's uh, led with uh, what was going on. 
Also, I did a group. This was a wonderful thing uh, where, you know, men getting ordered to a men's group was a diversion program so they didn't have to do jail time. Mm. Well, we had an incredible uh, city attorney, and this is partly because we involved everybody uh, so people knew about our program. She came to us and said that a particular incident had happened. She had tried to prosecute twice a man who had beat his girlfriend, and he got off. And then she fought basically back, but she fought. She she hit him. And she was arrested. And when she was asked, did you assault him? She said, yes, I did. And generally, our city attorney told us that men will say, no, no, I didn't do it. You know, she she ran into the door or whatever. And so women were getting jail time. And when a woman got jail time, many more layers happen if she has children. And then he's got the, you know, the upper hand, there's custody and things. So Mary came to us and the city attorney and said, what about a diversion group for women? And so that took, you know, organizing and focus groups. Focus groups were always what we did before we made any big decisions or wrote any manuals. <laughs> you know, talk with the women. Make sure this is what they, will this help or hurt them? What's the That's bad? who question? you did the focus groups with? Is, was, was women who used violence, yeah. And uh, so then we, so then we were able to do a group for them. And so what I'm saying is sometimes if it was a specific group, there was specific information we needed to be sure we gave. But the operation of the group was the same in looking at what happened and what are the forces within that that caused that to happen. Yeah, you know, I listen to you describe all these different interactions, Jill, and the theme that comes up for me is connection and interconnection. Like there's not separation. And you talked about how a concern you have is that more so in the work now, there is the categorization, but it seems like there's not separation from the community, from the criminal legal system, from survivors, from other organizations. And and it seems like that was a conscious choice on the part of the work. Yes, I had wonderful organizers in the group. They were instrumental in getting the community involved and then pretty much handed it over to us then, you know. Oh, for example, we had a panel of women talk to the city council because the city council was going to make a decision that would affect women. So we got a panel of women. And they they wrote what they wanted to say. And these were all women out of the out of the groups. And they spoke eloquently because it was their story. And afterwards, a woman off the city council came up to us and said, That was beautiful. Who wrote their speeches? Wow. You know, and so that helped those of us working in this to really understand. What the gen- who does the general population think battered women are? Poor, inarticulate. Again, somehow it must be their fault. 
since she asked who wrote their speeches. I'll, I will never forget that. Mm-hmm. Because women have their story to tell. They are our teachers. And here's another little story about how important it is to have relationships with the institutions. You know, I got to meet with police lieutenants once a month. So they knew me. And there was a woman I was advocating for. And uh, one night I got a call at my house. And it was a police officer. I recognized his name. And he said, we have so-and-so here. That's a woman I was advocating for. And she's been beat up, and we can't find him. And she won't go to the shelter. But she said she said she'd go to your house. Can we bring her there? And I said, yeah. And she came to my house, so she was safe. I was safe because he didn't know where I lived. And he, too, this you know how batterers use the children so much and he had taken the daughter. And I said, where do you think he took the daughter? To his girlfriend's house. So I said, in the morning, let's go. Let's go. I'll go up to the house. You stay in the car. And I went up to her and I just said, um, well, I'm here to pick up so-and-so. You know, gave a little spiel. I said, you know, that's what I said you know, social services is going to get involved in this and they're going to be knocking at your door. She goes, well, I don't want that. Okay, okay, take her back to her mother. (laughs) I mean, these are, these, you know, that's what I would love to see be able to happen again. Women do this for each other all the time. Mm -hmm. So advocates seem to be more restricted than a friend. And that's too bad. Well, somehow our professionalization has disconnected us from our being in community and being, you know, our humanity in, in some situations. As as wonderful as advocates are today, I, I do think yes. you're right that the organizations and structures have robbed us of the zip abilities to act based on what has meaning in the moment and not what's prescribed for us. Yeah, and it was the With our institutions becoming so hierarchical, uh, advocates basically are being paid the the least. Mm -hmm. I hope that's not everywhere, but that doesn't help either. Two of my granddaughters, one is just graduating and one is 22, and they both want to do what grandma does. I want to do what grandma does. I'm really grandma. And uh, how do we do that? Well, you just start applying for the jobs. So, you know, I was helping them. And seriously, they were paying like 13, no more than 15. And the girls are going off on their own. They need to make more money than that, or they're going to be dependent on a man or a partner. And they're independent. And uh, so that's sad. Mm-hmm. That's just, that's a, that's sad. Well, it's tragic, uh, really. It's, tra- right? it's, it's tragic. It's not a livable that, ways. Yeah. Right. To do what is rewarding, but also really demanding work. Mm-hmm. And then everybody says to me, well, they're advocates. No matter where they work, they'll be advocates. Yeah. But to not have the choice to do this for your work because of the salary, that seems wrong. 
You know, uh, so that reminds me of another question. I One of the things I wonder, Jill, as I listen to you talk, I know that you live in a rural community. Duluth is a rural community. And how much of these interconnections and interactions do you think are about being in a rural setting? I'm sure that it helped tremendously. But I still think you can make connections in larger cities, you know, by presenting yourself, saying, this is, I'm from this organization. I wonder, I want to know, like, about you and how we can help one another. And you, there will be people who have some power in those organizations that are good people. And so you you let them know you're there and what you do and present yourself in a way of how can I help you? You don't say this is what I need you to do. Right. They're not going to. Now, who, who would respond well to that? Right? Yeah. Right. Well, it also seems to me that's something for those of us who don't live in rural communities can learn about the power of connection and building communities. I think often in rural communities, given the resources are so limited and there are fewer people, those connections may happen more naturally, uh, but it doesn't have to be that complicated is what I'm hearing you describe. Right. I wanted to go back to something else that you uh, have talked about or mentioned, which is about survivors being advocates. And I know you know that all too often these days and for many years, uh, there's rules about when someone who's received services or advocacy from a program can work there or volunteer there. And I know from the work that Praxis does that there are countless advocates that are survivors that aren't comfortable or told not to reveal that in their work setting. I read a statistic from a research another organization did 80% of advocates are survivors. And yet somehow that's not fully acknowledged. It's not visible. I wonder what your thoughts are about that dynamic that we're seeing today. <laughs> well, I think it's ridiculous. I'm really, really, really sorry. Really sorry. When I started to hear that, it was happening right in my own community that if she had used the services she needed to not work there. I When I would ask why, I never got any answer that would resonate with me. It was because it was more about because that's the policy. Well, who made that policy and why? Do you have you had bad experiences? You know, so I'm very sorry because listen, uh, we're going to lose that passion and that what she has to teach. I'm not saying that every, but I think that that policy is a hindrance to us. Well, and I look at your own experience. You said six weeks after attending the group, you started facilitating. Mm -hmm. And then that set you off on a path that has changed the life of so many people, so many women and children, and had such a tremendous, profound difference. And we would have been lost that. And so what are we losing when we're not welcoming survivors into the work with us. But also, what a horrible double message to not let advocates acknowledge that they are survivors. 
It seems hypocritical. It's so hypocritical because even the statistics of domestic violence, that would be unlikely that you would go into any any organization where women work and that half of them or whatever haven't experienced violence. Well, and it doesn't seem like it moves organizations, survivors, or the work forward if we can't be transparent. You talked a lot about how the organization that you worked at trusted you and built and communicated a trust and respect that allowed you the agency to be able to act. And then over time, it looks like that became kind of a symbiotic, like the more they trusted you and respected you, the more you're able to act. What is it that organizations could do now to be able to create that same kind of trust and respect for their staff, the advocates that work there? I'm going to say something that sounds a little strange, but because of the hierarchies that are in women's organizations now, the pay differential is huge. And money makes a difference as well if somebody in the organization's making big money and advocates making small money. So we should work some pay out for one thing. Like uh, my daughter was just recently brought to the level of CEO of a huge company in Northern Minnesota. Oh, suddenly everything she has to say, oh, oh, Okay, she well, she's got credibility. She's got credibility because she's making that kind of money. I mean, that's that sure supports the status quo. But otherwise, it's such a hard question. I mean, why do you think it? Uh, seriously, why do you think that happens? That advocates are not allowed to make decisions. On their own. Oh, I think I could answer that. I think they're probably afraid somehow it's going to, they're trying to protect the organization and that somehow the organization will pay the price for that. Is that it? Because it's a mystery to me. Yeah, I was thinking that as you spoke, Jill, that I think there's so much fear and, and you said it yourself and it was so apparent in the stories that you told that you and the other advocates in your organization were so brave. And it may not have seemed like bravery at the time, but certainly now when I look at that, I don't know that we are, that organizationally we're giving people the space to t- be courageous because we're so afraid we'll lose the funding or we'll lose public support or we'll lose board members because there is a lot to lose. It's maybe a real fear, but but somehow that fear is limiting us and shackling us. So how do we throw off that fear and 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 be brave? Yeah, that's a that's a question for discussion for all of us. Maybe that's a good question to leave with people to think about, you know, how is it that we can we can tap into that courage that you so beautifully described for us. If if you think about advocates or other people working at gender-based violence programs, is there any message that you want to leave with them or a final thought as, as they look to the future of their work, our work? Remember that we're all connected. We're all connected. I wish I could say something more profound. 
Well, I think that is profound. You know, we are connected. It isn't, you know, the it's the purity of that message. It doesn't have to be super complex because it is, um, you know, I think the beauty is in the fact that it is practical and powerful and made a difference. I mean, your life and your work is a testament to that. You know, historically, that's always been true. It's community and connection and collective action that you described that has created change, either individually or in our country, in the world. Yes, very much. So community of like-minded people who've had similar experiences and are moving forward, you know, together Mm -hmm. is such a gift. Dan, I learned so much from hearing Jill talk about the importance of centering survivors in our movement and the ways that she's done that. This is something that I think is really diminished in our work at this point in time. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, Kata. Jill's stories were so compelling about what it meant for her to be a survivor in this work. And even though we began as a survivor-led movement, I wonder how today we're inviting survivors into our work for social change. I hope that's something that listeners will continue to think about, as I will. I know I will, too. It's certainly a challenge to all of us. Before we go, we want to thank Jill Abernathy for joining us to share her powerful stories and to continue these conversations with us. This podcast has been hosted by Diane Dosis and Kata Isari with additional production support from Beth Gibbs with Lyft Podcasting. Patrice Anthony and Amanda Watson, along with other Praxis staff, were instrumental in creating this podcast. We'd also like to thank the U.S. Department of Justice Office on Violence Against Women for supporting this project. And thank you for listening. Be sure to follow A Force for Change on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any future episodes. If you'd like to continue the conversation or find out more about our programs, you can reach us at info at praxisinternational.org or visit our website at praxisinternational.org.